0: That sometimes is viewed in a negative way. So they say, well, so what? Patients have to exercise for the rest of their life. And I say, yeah. And that's, to me, that's okay. Because if you think about how do we treat Parkinson's now, we give them medication, right? And those individuals have to take those medications for the rest of their life. We implant them with deep brain stimulators, Those stimulators are on 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of their life.
1: Hi, this is Amy, the Senior Group Fitness Instructor at the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Are you looking for a spark of inspiration to bring to your next class? Find us at IndoorCycleInstructor.com. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. I'm John McGowan, and you can reach me, John, at IndoorCycleInstructor.com. Now, as endurance athletes, cyclists, indoor cyclists, we all recognize that great feeling we have at the end of a ride, at the end of a class. It's wonderful, and it's what motivates many of us to come back time and time again. But what would happen if, at the end of the class, Not only did you feel better, but it helped to reduce some of the symptoms of a debilitating disease. Well, joining me today is Dr. Jay Alberts, and he has done a bunch of research regarding cycling and the therapeutic effect it can have on a Parkinson's sufferer. So, Dr. Jay Alberts, welcome to the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast.
0: Great. Thanks for having me, John.
1: Can I call you Jay?
0: Oh, absolutely. I prefer (laughs)
1: All right, thank you. And we were chatting online, and your brother lives not too far away from here. Yes,
0: um, you, you guys live in a great area for cycling, and for oh, custard as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which is really the whole reason we cycle anyway. So.
1: Correct, so what we get to eat at the end. Tell me quickly, what is your cycling background?
0: Well, so my cycling background as an individual cyclist really didn't start until 2003, Um, When I started uh, riding with a group in Atlanta called Fraser Cycling, um, sort of, uh, you know, was bitten by the, you know, triathlon bug and then, uh, you know, did some long distance triathlons and such and then uh, was blessed with a, a little daughter. And as you know, if you want to train for triathlon, you have to sort of be dedicated to it. And so that took a little too much time. So then, I just focused on cycling, uh, and then I actually done a few uh, ultra endurance twenty four hour and twelve hour races, uh, both in Florida and Michigan. So my my best, uh, my greatest distance in twenty four hours, I think, was four hundred and thirty seven miles a few years ago in uh, Michigan. So wow, yeah, So that's, that's been good fun, and you know that's really about the extent of my racing career if career is closer.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, that's what I call it. <laughs> but uh,
0: but now, you know, most, again, I focus a little bit more on ultra-distance stuff. And, uh, you know, a big ride for me every year for fun is the, the ragbri, uh, the bike ride across Iowa, and, and doing that with my kids. And so now I actually, I probably spend as much time on, on my triple, uh, my three-seated bike with my kids as I do my single, so...
1: Wow! So you have a triple. I've I've seen those, and it's, they're probably the cutest thing I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. It's a great way for us to, you know, go across the state and have rides here. And, and to me, it's a lot safer than than using the tag along because you you know you've probably seen it on anything beyond a, a ride downtown. Um, you know, you start to get this. The kid is leaning way over, and uh, I, I just am not a big fan of tag-alongs in terms of from a safety perspective. So,
1: Understood. Now, I have to ask before I forget, Is do you have a picture of you and your kids that uh, I can put on this post?
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I have multiple pictures. So well, good. I'll, we, so I'll,
1: I'll look forward to one. I
0: think yeah, when people ride with us, we're like, uh, they say, wow, it's like riding with a circus because uh, everybody's uh, looking and asking if they can take pictures. So – yeah,
1: I'll send one over. Awesome. All right. So, your experience at Ragbri, um, we're, you're just you're riding across the state of Iowa, and and so, tell me the story of what happened. Yeah, you, yeah. To this understanding of cycling with Parkinson's. So,
0: so in 2003 is the first year that I actually rode across rode Ragbri, and we did that with a Parkinson's patient. And so how that got started was, again, I was with the Frazier Cycling Group, and that uh, went the winter before we were having our holiday party, and, you know, Kathy Frazier, who has Parkinson's, um, you know, said, oh, I'd like to ride a little bit more with my husband, Ralph. Uh, And so I came up with the brilliant idea that they should ride a tandem across the state of Iowa, um, you know, just to raise awareness for Parkinson's disease. And the reason I thought that was, one, I thought, uh, you know, I had recently had a friend who was diagnosed with Parkinson's in Iowa, a, a, a farmer from the Midwest, and basically his approach was, well, you know, this de- disease is here and there's nothing I can do about it. And he just sat back and it was going to, to you know, it was to him a, a, a death sentence, you know. So I really wanted to show, you know, people in rural America that, hey, be diagnosed with a neurological disorder is not a death sentence. You know, you can still have a very active lifestyle. And Kathy really embodied that. And so, you know, the idea was that Ralph and Kathy would ride across a state. We would give some talks here and there in small towns and say, hey, look at Kathy. She, she would hold her up as this, you know, beacon of hope. Uh, and we did that. But the other thing that happened was, and I know that you ride tandem, Uh, and you ride with your wife, which is, uh, which is great, but Ralph and Kathy hadn't really practiced too much on a tandem. And so as you can imagine, uh, when they got through about the first half of the first day, uh, they really had some, uh, let's say marital issues.
1: (laughs) Yes. I can understand. (laughs)
0: So I think, I think it all came to a head when Ralph got off the bike and accidentally forgot that Kathy was still on the back. And so Kathy ended up uh, on the ground. Um, and uh, as they were musing about divorce, I said, wait a second, tell you what, Ralph, why don't you ride my bike and I'll finish out the day with Kathy. Um, and so it actually turned out that, you know, Kathy and I had a great time riding together that day, probably because we were not married. And uh, we just kept riding throughout the week together. And so during that week, she said, you know. It doesn't feel like I have Parkinson's when I'm on the bike. And I said, oh, "Okay, that's great. Um, you know, maybe because of all the pie and ice cream that we're eating, and you know, out of the traffic of Atlanta." And then she, uh, during that week, she wrote a card out to a, a member of our group, a birthday card: "Happy birthday, Gary." And I saw that card, and I was amazed. And I said, "Who wrote this card?" Because you know there were there were only guys in our group at that time. And none of us are going to write Gary a birthday card. And she said, I did. Isn't it amazing? And I said, it is amazing. And so you might be wondering, why was it so amazing that she wrote a birthday card out to someone? Well, the amazing part was that Kathy experienced micrographia, which many Parkinson's patients do. And micrographia is a smallness and illegibility in handwriting. So normally, her handwriting was very difficult to read, and it was very small. Here, this card, Happy Birthday Gary, looked beautiful and very legible and, and a standard size. So that was, that was sort of the first inkling of uh, you know, the fact that maybe cycling or maybe tandem cycling may be doing something for the neurological system there. So, and, I, and I'll note that uh, one of my biggest regrets is uh, a day later I asked Gary, hey, Gary, could I have your card? And like a typical uh, male, he he had thrown it away. So
1: yeah, <laughs> so the evidence is gone. The evidence is
0: gone. So so at that time, again, I was a, a new professor in uh, Atlanta at Georgia Tech and Emory, and so we continued to do the ride uh, for the next uh, four years or so, and then I moved to the Cleveland Clinic and uh, took a position here at the Center for Neurological Restoration, and. In doing so, I met a gentleman who was uh, a movement disorders neurologist who had Parkinson's disease and he had uh, deep brain stimulation. So deep brain stimulation is a surgical procedure where we go in and we stimulate an area of the brain and that improves motor uh, symptoms associated with Parkinson's. So it's it's a great uh, surgical intervention. So he came with us in 2007. And, you know, we were talking, and he's a scientist and a clinician, and we were talking about this whole exercise thing. And he said, well, hey, let's test it out. So tomorrow I'll ride the tandem bike with you. And I said, great. What he did is before we started the ride, he decided to turn his deep brain stimulation system off.
1: And just so everybody understands, this is something that you wear as a belt
0: pack? No, no, no. So this is, a, this is, this is brain surgery, Right. So this is, uh, you have a, a microelectrode that goes into your brain, and it surges electricity into a certain area of your brain. So it's all underneath the skin. So you have this, this generator that's basically under the clavicle, and you turn it on, and that stimulates or, or sends electrical impulses uh, to an area in the brain. So what you can do, though, is they empower the patients to be able to turn it on and off, and now they're doing some additional things with that as well. So what Dave did is, uh, is that he turned his stimulator off before we got on the on the bike, and we have some really good video of him, you know, shaking immediately because the effects are immediate. And then we went on this 50 mile bike ride, just part of rag ride, and he was on the back of the tandem. What happened was we stopped about 15 miles in for a little breakfast and he looked at me while he was holding the danish in his right hand and he said where does my tremor go and i said i have no idea but let's get back on the bike so that was really to me again a big or a very important moment because i knew the effects of deep brain stimulation uh and they're very dramatic and so now we were starting to have this sort of uh, change in function or you know, symptoms as a result of this tandem cycling. So that's when we really started to say, okay, we need to do uh, sort of a preliminary trial here uh, to assess it. So so that really started our, our scientific study of what we're calling forced exercise uh, for Parkinson's.
1: So that people understand the – riding a tandem if you haven't recognized that the the captain the person in front the stoker in the back are tied together with one chain and typically the captain well not almost typically almost always sets the cadence that's what you were doing when you're riding exactly. correct
0: yep so that's very it's a great description and the it's interesting in the sense that people have been studying exercise in parkinson's for you know 50 60 years and in general, the effects have not been all that impressive in, in humans. But now in the animal literature, people have been studying exercise, and they use a type of exercise that they call forced exercise as well, where they actually put the mouse or the rat on a treadmill, turn it on, and the rat has to keep up with the treadmill. And the way they keep, make sure that the rat keeps up with the treadmill is by having an electric grid behind the treadmill, Right. So if it doesn't keep up, it's going to get shocked. So it's motivated to keep up. So the idea is that it pedal or it runs or exercises at a rate faster than it can on its own so or would voluntarily. So I think we have the same thing going with the tandem, you know, is the electricity. <laughs> right Again, Kathy and other patients that I rode with, they have, you know, one of the signs or symptoms of Parkinson's is bradykinesia or slowness of movement. So they naturally pedal at a slower rate than, than I did. I pedaled at 80 to 90 RPMs. Kathy pedaled at about 40 or 50 RPMs. So, again, as we got on the bike or on the tandem, she had to keep up with me in terms of my pedaling rate. And the other interesting part of that, we, you know, I could detect it on the tandem that she just wasn't sitting back there getting her legs moved around passively, but that she was actively contributing. And so then we did a study to actually look at that and to see, you know, actually, I think we have the very the first and maybe the only uh, tandem that actually measured uh, power from the stoker and the captain and at the rear hub. So what we found in that initial study was that, you know, individuals who participated in a forced exercise exercise intervention three times a week for eight weeks, they actually had a Uh, improvement in their clinical ratings of about 35%. So when we put this into the – and those patients who did voluntary exercise, same aerobic intensity, the only difference was that they could pedal at whatever rate they wanted. They didn't show any improvement in motor function. Now, both groups showed improvement in cardiovascular function, which is great, right? So that, that just shows that exercise is good for you. Even if you're a Parkinson's patient, exercise is good for you. So that's great. But the motor benefit only came for those patients who were in the forced group. And that's where we started to think that um, or support the hypothesis that there's something about the the rate of exercise going on here and that the patients need their efforts to be augmented, You know, whether it's from a timing perspective or a, a power perspective or what, um they needed to be augmented uh, for them to be able to achieve or to uh, derive benefit from exercise
1: so how did you how did you augment that then moving away from a tandem into a stationary cycle
0: yeah yeah, yeah. so now we have uh, developed a, uh, a motor and a motor control system that goes into a sort of a standardized or a standard... Uh, Uh, recumbent uh, type or um, semi-recumbent stationary bicycle that you would find in any, you know, your standard uh, YMCA or Lifetime Fitness or wherever. Um, And so what we did is, again, this motor is is built into the bike or attached to the system in in the uh, housing there. And it's really easy to put a motor on a bike and just turn it on and have it go. The challenge is to develop the algorithm so the individual is actually contributing effort or power to the pedal stroke and that that motor and that control system is responsive based on their output in addition to the desired output from, the, uh, from what we found in our research study. So it's sort of analogy. We're sort of trying to take, I know you're a captain of a tandem, I'm the captain. We're really trying to use that motor and that algorithm to to replicate what we do and what we feel on a tandem. Because when you're riding on the tandem, you can feel whether or not your stoker is working hard or not working hard, right? And there's these these very subtle this very subtle relationship between a successful tandem team in terms of knowing when the when the other person is working, not working, or how they can uh, optimize effort.
1: My wife Amy would describe it differently. She would say that she feels compelled to work harder when I work harder.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's very interesting. We have some interesting data on on that. So we we looked at some normal or you know non Parkinsonian uh, cyclists on a on a tandem, and and with that same tandem on some road trials. And it was really interesting to see how um, that sort of relationship existed in terms of driving the other. The other really cool thing was when you look at the power analysis, that, that the captain and the stoker would almost alternate with these little micro rest periods. Not that they would do nothing, but that their effort would decrease slightly um, after you know, some sustained effort from the other person. Uh, it was a really cool interplay, and it was pretty consistent across teams.
1: So you have data for uh, us tandem riders, yeah, yeah. able-bodied. I
0: haven't, I haven't bothered to publish it because I don't know who really. I don't know if any scientific journals really care about it.
1: <laughs> no, all right. You're finding though that there is also application in just using an unmotorized indoor cycle.
0: Yeah. So, if you had asked me two or three years ago, if uh, or what Parkinson's patients needed to do in terms of exercise, I would have definitely said forced exercise. But I think what we're finding now, and this could be based on the demographics of the patients that are starting to join our studies or understand what is is related to uh, exercise and such. Um, but now I think there's, obviously, there's there's value, and we're showing some improvements in patients who are not necessarily undergoing forced exercise, but also voluntary exercise. And what's interesting is those patients are typically pedaling at a relatively high rate. So we're pretty excited about these findings, because I think it, you know, for some patients, I think they will need or do need uh, forced exercise, but... For other patients who may be younger or uh, recently diagnosed and very healthy, they, other than having Parkinson's, they may be just fine with uh, a more high-rate type of exercise.
1: All right. So are you describing where you've got someone who um, maybe has not exercised in 15 or 20 years, the difficulty in getting there? Yeah,
0: it could be that or even it, depending on their symptom severity, right? Uh, yes, you know, that's really what we're trying to understand in our research study is, you know, what, how can we develop patient-specific exercise programs or recommendations uh, for Parkinson's patients? Because, you know, we all know exercise is good, right? But, but I think when you have neurological disease, we need a little bit more information, a little more prescriptive information than just, yeah, go exercise.
1: Okay, so there has to be a, a protocol. So exactly. All right. A lot of our indoor cycles nowadays are offering us, you know, data beyond uh, or, or data in general. Meaning, you know, we have cadence indication, we have power indication, um, not to mention heart rate that we've been monitoring. You know, do those have uh, value in what? Yeah, you're no,
0: I think we have to. I you mean, know, right? Those are all, you know. Um, measures of exercise performance or intensity. So, you know, we're monitoring not only power and cadence, but also heart rate. And, um, you know, we can monitor temperature as well. That doesn't seem to be as uh, important for us. But these other exercise performance variables uh, are very important. And I think the more information we can gather and use them essentially to come up with a, you know, I think about this as almost coming up eventually with a uh a dimensionless sort of system or unit that that will you know show patients that hey this is where you need to be and it's really a compilation of you know cadence, heart rate, power, uh power contributed by the motor, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Interesting. And that would be Patient specific.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's 100% patient specific, because if I mean the old adage in neurology is is that if you've seen 100 Parkinson's patients, you've seen 100 Parkinson's patients. Sure, there are you know some commonalities with respect to symptoms and and signs. But in terms of the management of those patients in terms of uh, drug protocols or pharmaceutical protocols uh, and surgical candidates, et cetera, each one really is essentially uh, looked at on a case-by-case basis. And I think if, if we're really serious about this whole exercise thing, we need to be as rigorous in the prescription of exercise as we are in the prescription of uh, medication.
1: So this would be something that your neur- neurologist would prescribe for well, you? Well, I, mean, this I specific think, protocol? you know, we've
0: got a lot of neurologists here at the Cleveland Clinic and actually throughout the country who, are, who aren't who are necessarily prescribing it, per se, in the traditional sense, but they certainly send patients our way uh, for us to set them up on exercise programs or to join our clinical trials. Um, so, yeah, in the future, I think, um, you know, we would love to be able to, to you know, put this in the... Uh, in the physician's, you know, bag of tools that they can use for the treatment of Parkinson's.
1: Wow. Very cool. And it it just has has such a, I I want to describe it as a halo around it, you know, too, in that, you know, that to do this or to provide this would, would, it sounds like really benefit these people in helping them to have a, just a more normal life.
0: Well, yeah. It, you know, I think it. obviously there are improvements in motor function, et cetera, et cetera, and that's great, and even cognitive function. But the other thing that it's, it's a little harder to quantify is, but it's super important, is, you know, it changes how they approach the disease, right? So rather than being a passive recipient to You know what are the effects of medications, or what are the effect of what's the effect of deep brain stimulation? It now changes them into an active participant in the treatment of their disease because this is something they can do, and they can do it, um, you know, in a prescribed manner. So, so now it's 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 a little bit more on them, and that goes to control. And so, when you think about a neurological disease like Parkinson's, that's a disease that really tries to rob the patient or the individual of control, right? They no longer have control of their movements as well as they did. And so this gives them potentially that level of, or some level of control back.
1: I could see that as being hugely yeah. important. Wow. Uh, you have a champion, uh, that I've, I've actually had a chance to speak with her. Her name is Nan Little. And, um, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with her?
0: Sure. Nan is uh, absolutely one of our poster uh, children for this program, for sure. And uh, so I actually met Nan via, she sent me an email um, and she talked about that she was doing these, you know, heard about our stuff and wanted to try it, and et cetera, et cetera. And so we sort of set her up on a little program. Uh, and Nan has been, uh, absolutely very diligent about doing this and she does it on her own. We talked to her very early in her disease. And so she's been doing it on her own and, uh, in Seattle and, you know, obviously we're in Cleveland. So, uh, she's very diligent. She's had really great, you know, results. And I think Nan can speak to the effects better than I can. I don't want to speak out of turn for her, um, but she's been great and to me I, I use her as sort of a an example of how it becomes a lifetime or a, it becomes part of your um, part of who you are in terms of assessing uh, or in terms of uh, your lifestyle you know so one of the the challenges with exercise that we all face is you know people want a really easier quick fix right and this is not you know we are definitely not saying that 8 weeks of Forced exercise or this high-rated exercise is going to cure your Parkinson's disease. And that sometimes is viewed in a negative way. So they say, well, so what? Patients have to exercise for the rest of their life? And I say, yeah. And that's, to me, that's okay. Because if you think about how do we treat Parkinson's now, we give them medication, right? And those individuals have to take those medications for the rest of their life. We implant them with deep brain stimulators. Those stimulators are on 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of their life. So, you know, again, this is something that Nan has really taken and uh, and run with. And she's been integral in in pushing this program through the various YMCAs in Washington and Michigan and, uh, you know, around the country. So, um, yeah, she's been a real inspiration.
1: One of the things that she brought up with me, and actually I've I've spoken with a couple of other um, instructors that are conducting these classes at a couple of Y's, is that th- that sometimes you know living with Parkinson's can be lonely. You know, having the the social value of being in a room with a bunch of others, you know, that are similarly afflicted, um, is beneficial. Do you do you experience that, or do you have?
0: Oh, absolutely! I think that's a that's a big benefit for for you know whether the patients are randomized to the control group or the voluntary exercise group or the force group. You know, our clinical trials, most clinical trials, you lose about ten to fifteen percent of your patients because they just quit coming or they just don't want to participate anymore. You know, our, our attrition rate is uh, less than point one percent. So patients come, and they come from a long ways away. And part of it is, I think they're getting benefit, but the other part is, you know, I think the social aspect is is significant for them, and important for them. Um, and so we've had a number of you know social get-togethers outside the lab, and there's been great attendance and the relationships they build and the ability to you know look over on on at the bike and see someone else who looks like them exercising is is important. The other thing is that you know this it's different than going to a support group, right? Support groups are great. And I think there are a lot of great ones out there, but sometimes you have such a diverse group of individuals in the support group that those patients who were 53 years old and just diagnosed for them to go to a support group with someone who's in the very late stages of Parkinson's that many have told me that that's very depressing for them. And, you know, so I think we provide somewhat of a uh, a similar population for folks to relate to.
1: It all sounds wonderful. All right. So what's next on the horizon for all of this?
0: Yeah. So the next thing is, you know, obviously we're pushing forward with the Parkinson's. Um, but the interesting part to me is how, you know, we have uh, fMRI data that shows the the effects of forced exercise are very similar to the effects in terms of the patterns of activations and the structures activated that are activated when you give a Parkinson's patient medication. Um, so, in fact, exercise is like medication here. But So to me, what's interesting is that we're, we're changing brain function. And if we can do this in Parkinson's patients, then I don't think there's any reason we can't do it in other neurological populations because we're having a change in brain. So we're actually doing a small clinical trial now where we're having uh, patients who have had a stroke go through the program as well and couple that with physical therapy that they're that they're doing so that's one and we're also looking at uh, we just had an NIH uh, project clinical study funded uh, that's actually looking at obesity and the the hypothesis there is that uh, you know, obese individuals typically start lots of exercise programs, but they quit lots of exercise programs. They <laughs> yes, quit. They, do. they quit because they're really hard, right? You've been you know sedentary for a long time, and you try to start into a full blown exercise program. It's really hard. The other reason they quit is there's no internal reward, or they don't experience that reward. Essentially, that you were alluding to uh, when we first started. So. If we think about what's going on in the Parkinson's patient, well, we know that they have a lack of dopamine, right? And dopamine is the neurotransmitter that underlies reward-seeking behavior as well. So if we can potentially increase dopamine, maybe, um, maybe we can use this intervention for obese individuals as well because we will make it not quite as hard because we'll provide them with some level of assistance, right? Right. And if we can provide them with that assistance to reach these high rates of exercise that we're talking about, maybe we can get some increased levels of, of dopamines or other neurotrophic factors that give them this feeling of reward. So that's a study that's you know uh, just starting now. But again, from my perspective, I get excited about this from a, can we change brain function?
1: The whole thing, it seems incredible. Um, you know, I guess I never looked at that from the, you know, talking about the obese, you know, because we'll see people in our classes. They just, you know, they finally decided, you know, that I got to do something. And is it accurate then to say that, well, let me back up. It's my experience and I and I think I speak for a lot of other instructors is that we'll get a deconditioned person in and they're not willing or not yeah, willing to do the work. That gets them to that dopamine point where you're getting those emotional uh, feelings of well-being, and and are, am I hearing you say that, that we need to help these people get to that place? Hopefully, that made sense.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what we need to try to do is to look at the mechanisms or what what's underlying reward or underlying reward sort of seeking behavior. And you know, I think again, there's good evidence to suggest it's dopamine. And so now, I'm looking to see how can we potentially elevate or, you know, change these dopamine levels, um, and you know, obviously provide an environment in which is supportive and non-judgmental, et cetera, et cetera, um, to, you know, so that that these individuals can um, you know, potentially experience these benefits.
1: Fascinating. Well, I'm going to be very encouraged to see how this all rolls out uh, here in the future. Uh,
0: Yeah, yeah. No, uh, we're excited about it.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Jay Alberts, I appreciate your time today. Uh, And I apologize to those listening uh, because this did get a little long, but I think there was a lot of just very valuable information included. So again, Jay, thank you.
0: Thanks very much, sir.
1: Thanks for listening to the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast the voice of indoor cycling. You can find us at IndoorCycleInstructor.com and we're in the iTunes Music Store. Search Indoor Cycling and subscribe to our free podcast. Now, if you're like most instructors, you're struggling with finding the time to create the perfect class profile and the music playlist to go with it. If that sounds like you, consider a premium subscription to ICI Pro. We've done all the work for you. Inside ICI Pro, you'll find the largest collection of comprehensive class profiles for teaching conventional classes, classes featuring heart rate, and also power. Contributed by the most diverse collection of master trainers and rockstar instructors on the planet. Every profile includes a complete music playlist we guarantee your class will enjoy. Combine ICI Pro with Spotify, and you could be ready to teach an awesome class in minutes Visit indoorcycleinstructor.com forward slash pro and start your no-risk trial subscription today.